family, and welcome to Normal with Autism. We are walking with faith on this side of the spectrum, and this is the podcast where we invite you to the kitchen table to experience the joy in the journey. Hi, Miss Sarah. Hey. How's it going? All right. How are you? Did I throw you off because I didn't say I'm Tara? You normally go, um, I, like, I say I'm Tara and you say. I know. I was kind of waiting. But okay, you know what? We're all about spontaneity and doing what feels good. Okay. I are like it. Today we are. Today we are. Today we are. Um, Let's just do a quick check-in. Uh, how are you today? Um... I don't know. I'm okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> you don't know how to answer that? Okay. Well, I think that feels completely normal and okay. I am feeling in that same space with you. And I think considering the trauma that we've all kind of vicariously experienced over Mm -hmm. these last couple of weeks with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, just want to have a brief pause for them. Absolutely. And I feel like in starting to honor them, you and I have dived pretty heavily into anti-racism work, which yeah. feels pretty good to do. It's it's good, but it's also really hard. Yes. Um, I feel like in addition to just the trauma of what is the news... Yes. Um, also, I'm finding out what people are really about, and that's been really difficult. Um, people that I thought that I knew, <laughs> I don't know them at all. So that's been weird. I think there, you know what I'm noticing? I notice that when I talk to my friends in the African-American community, there is rage and anger Mm -hmm. which is rightly so and um I think when I talk to my white friends and check in with myself also it feels more like a sadness and to me that means we're in kind of different areas of grieving this Mm -hmm. this whole thing feels like a grieving process to me this whole with between the pandemic and losing those three beautiful souls, you know, very quickly, all within that kind of small amount of time. I've noticed like that we're in a grieving process. And I just feel like I'm checking in with them. And I feel like they're saying we're in a different space than you are. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Because they've been obviously experiencing it directly. Mm -hmm. And of course, more aware and awake of it since it began, since this whole thing began. Yeah. 
Um, what's been really interesting and kind of difficult for me is um, just how much I didn't know. Yes. You know, like I feel like everything I learned in history class was a joke. Like I just very recently learned about, for example, the Tulsa race massacre mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these stories because history is written by the victors, you know, you don't hear the real history necessarily. Um, and I'm just like, how did I not know all -hmm. of these things? And then I, I feel a lot of shame Mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's really hard to really look upon yourself and ask yourself, you know, what are my unconscious biases? What is, you know, what are my real beliefs? You know, I was raised to think a certain way. Is that really what I think? What are my true, you know, thoughts and feelings? How Um, am I complicit in the system? Yeah, you know, things that I didn't have to think about before, you know, like Mm -hmm. before it was enough to say like, oh, I'm not a racist, but that's Mm -hmm. not enough. Like I need to be anti-racist. And, um, there's a lot of reflection and hard work that goes into that. And I'm, I'm glad to do the work because it's important, uh, but it's also very draining and hard. Um, I don't, I have so much respect and admiration for the people that, you know, are on the front lines for this because they're my heroes. And respect and admiration for the people of color, the black indigenous and people of color who have done the work that yes. we are standing on their shoulders to wake up to it. Mm-hmm. They are, they are leading us, I think very compassionately through this work. And yeah. that, that is, that is, oh, yeah. That, that like I can't amazing. imagine how hard, like it's so hard for me to hear it. Like I can't imagine how hard it is to live it. Exactly. Exactly. So, so with all of that, um, we thought maybe it was okay to also focus in on some joyful things over these next couple of episodes. And we wanted to bring in um, a lady named Molly Grisham. And she has a lot of joy to share with us. And I just want to go ahead and say hello to her. Hello, Molly. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on so much. Um, I will just let you introduce yourself uh, quickly to our listener family. And then I'm just going to continue to gush about you as we talk together tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. So I'll give you a a brief snapshot. Um, I spent... 20 years, mostly in athletics. My first 10 years, I was teaching at a two-year college and coaching high school and club soccer. And then I hit my early 30s and thought, what's next? And so I did what all logical people do. I quit and sold my house and took a college coaching job and moved halfway across the country. And so I spent the next 10 years in college athletics. And what I realized was I was in coaching because I loved developing my players as people. So soccer was just the thing we all had in common, but what I was really invested in was developing people. 
And so while I was a college coach, I became really curious in how would developing our leaders and our culture, both with intentionality, impact our experience together as a group? Would it even make a difference? So I got really interested in the experiential learning cycle and writing curriculum. And I just used my team like a research and design lab because when your coach says, hey, we're going to have a meeting, you just you show up to the meeting. And <laughs> what happened was uh, <laughs> what happened was we two things I noticed right away. Um, one was we became more competitive. And so I attribute that to the fact that our leaders were equipped with the skills that they needed to deal with this, the little stuff before it became big stuff. So that meant we as coaches could teach other things other than put out fires. And then the second piece was we had more fun. And I think that is the recipe for the perfect place you want to be. If you can find a place that is competitive, meaning they're good at what they do and they love each other doing it, like unpack your suitcase. You don't want to go anywhere else. That's a great place to be. So the last few years while I was coaching, I was starting to get calls from the teams we were playing and they were saying, I don't know what you're doing with your team, but it's working. Can you come help us figure that out? So four years ago this month, I walked into my boss's office and I quit <laughs> and, and I started my own business. And so I now do leadership development and team building and conflict resolution and communication skills um, with teams and groups all over the country. I would say about 75% of my clients are college athletic teams, but the other 25% would be corporate groups, faith communities, nonprofits, CEOs that are able to say there's either this thing that's slowing us down and we need help figuring out what that thing is, or we're really good at this. And we want, want you to help us stay good. But most of my work is highly experiential, highly hands-on. Um, usually in non-pandemic times, we are all in the same room. We're having shared experiences. We're processing and facilitating what we've learned and how we've grown together. So these last couple of months, I've been figuring out how to transition all of that to online work and coming up with some creative tools and ways to help people to continue to grow even when we can't be in the same room. But I love the work I do. I love developing leaders. I love developing people. And I'm excited to talk a little bit about that tonight. That's that awesome. Wonderful. Um, I have to say it, in doing the uh, outline for us to talk tonight, I watched, I think, all of your YouTube videos. Me too. <laughs> Did you watch them? Uh -huh. I, sent, I was gonna say I sent them to you, and I, I'm I say this with all sincerity. I watched it, and then I was like, I am going to conquer the world. I just in those like under minute YouTube videos, yeah. I was like, Molly made me feel so much better as a person, and I I'm gonna make things happen. Good. So. It was like, how do I make this like my like alarm? Right. <laughs> like in the morning. So I wake up to this. Right. Kara, have a light bulb moment. Right. Nice. Okay. I'm going to put that on my to-do list. Partner okay. with cell phone companies to create my own alarm for phones. Okay. We'll, yeah, we'll I will that. be first in line to download it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and honestly, that's why I was so excited for you to come on and talk with our listener family you wrote um, a blog post recently over at it's mollygrisham.com, correct? Okay. Mm -hmm. So you wrote a, a blog post recently about leadership in, in grief. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe we could start there since, again, we are kind of in this grieving period. Yeah. Um, 
I thought you could talk for just a few minutes about um, how you kind of discovered mm. a little bit more about being a leadership in this grief period that we're all in. And you also talked about researching traumatic growth. So I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because right now we're kind of in a, in a trauma within a trauma or a crisis within a crisis. We, we thought two months ago in the midst of COVID, this is our rock bottom. This is as bad as it gets. And then we went another level. To the uh, seventh layer of hell. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I really wrote that when we were only dealing with COVID or only aware of what we needed to deal with in terms of COVID. And I was really struggling with the volume of people on my social media who were posting what I would call positive psychology used in a way to shame others, which seems a bit counterintuitive, but it was a lot of posts about what you should be doing with this time and how you should be grateful for this time. And I, I struggled to figure out why is this bothering me? Because in non-pandemic times, I'm leading that parade of let's find something positive. Let's reframe this. Good will come from this. But at this time, that just didn't feel right to me. In fact, there was one post that I really had to sit with. It said something like, that book you want to write, if you can't do it now, you'll never do it. And I thought, what? I don't know why that feels so off to me, but there was something that was, that was visceral for me. And that's when I finally realized, oh, we're in trauma. <laughs> okay, that's an important word to use right now because we know that in trauma, parts of our brain shut down so that we can survive. So for me, as someone who has to be creative in my work, the creative part of my brain was was shutting down so that the rational, logical part of me could just function, function, function. And so here I had this guilt on top of guilt because one, one voice was saying to me, you need to write that book. And then the other side was like, you just need to go lay on the couch, like these competing voices. So it wasn't until I realized it was trauma. And it wasn't until I realized that we wouldn't ask people in other traumatic situations. So we wouldn't tell someone who had been a part of a mass shooting while you're laying in the hospital bed, what a great time to learn Italian. Like that would, we wouldn't say that. That would be offensive. We wouldn't bring um, someone back from, a, from active duty in, in war and say, what a great chance for you to learn how to knit. Like it, we just wouldn't do that because it's trauma. So once I kind of figured out, oh, this is trauma and there's grief associated with trauma, this makes so much more sense. So then a friend of mine shared this phrase, post-traumatic growth. And I thought, now that is a concept I am interested in. So I looked it up and and it basically says that some people after traumatic events grow. And I thought, well, I hope I'm one of those some people. (laughs) So what can I do during this time to potentially prepare myself for a season of growth? versus I have to grow right now because this is my window of opportunity. Because my brain was like, you're in survival mode. You're not in growth mode. It's a little bit like if you think of the agricultural seasons, sometimes when you first plant a seed, it just sits under the soil. It's not growing yet. It's just sitting there in that darkness. And that's a little bit what this time felt like to me. Just, Just sit in this darkness, get your root system ready to go. So for me, this has just been a season of thinking about 
where are my roots planted? Because I think we often think of growth in two ways. There's the fruit that we produce, the outcome, and then there's the root system that allows us to do so. And so for me, this is a season of deepening those roots, thinking about what I'm planted in, tapping into what, what matters to me, and trusting that when my brain and my body is in a healthier place, the, the fruit of that will come. But when we think about leadership, we have to be aware that in a season of trauma, it is not the time for us to say, follow me into the vast unknown when we don't know where we're going. Like we have to be responsible and understand that when we make a move as a leader, people follow us. And, and so we've got to have our own self-care lined up um, before we can really take people into a new space. Girl, yes. preach. Yes. Yes, yes, yes to all to all of that. Yeah. Yes. The the visual that you gave resonates with me so much right now. In part because just a, as a little aside note, Molly and Sarah and I met in LA at the end of January uh, in Rob Bell's wonderful class, something to say class. And Sarah and I took that trip and we had no idea what was going to come from it. Like we just took the trip thinking like, oh, you know, we'll just, I'll go sit in a class and Sarah will go do some great thrift store shopping and. And find Amy Poehler's star on the walk of fame. Yes, exactly. Tina Fey doesn't have one for some reason. Uh Uh-oh. Well, we need to, we need to work on that. I'm working on it. Okay. So, um, you know, that class happened and it was crazy. All of these wonderful things happened over the next couple of weeks as a result of that class. Like number one, I met people like yourself and made a connection, got to talk to Rob Bell, like in person, um, met other wonderful creative people that said, you know, we we're on board with what you're doing and we want to, you know, hold you up. And it was just such an amazing thing. And that's like the producing part, like Mm. all of these things produced from that. And then the pandemic hit Mm. and it, it was like everything felt like it all just kind of died and, and went away for a minute. Yeah. And, and we're, I feel like we're in the midst now. Like if I can think about it that way, it helps me to think about things like, okay, it's all right that I'm not producing. It's all right that we don't feel creative. The roots are what we're working on. And if I think about it, that's really where Sarah and I are right now in this creative endeavor anyway. Yeah. Um, so the, the redwood trees, I don't know if, if this rings a bell for you or resonates for you, but the redwood trees are known to grow 300 plus feet tall. So you would assume their root system is just to the center of the earth. Their root system is typically six to 12 feet deep. And the only reason they're able to stay up is because all of the redwoods link their roots together. And so they're all holding each other up. And so to me in this season of life right now, I think that is very much what is happening with our root system. Like we are all locking arms and holding each other up through some really, really painful conversations and some difficult times where people feel very 
exposed and very confused and very lost that just kind of the surface of our soul is all lacking roots right now. Um, and so if we can think of it in different seasons, I think there's some real power in that metaphor, but um, we, we, can, we can lock our roots together. We can tap into each other and do some really powerful things. Wow. I love the, I love that. I love my therapist, but I might love you more. I know I was going to say. <laughs> wow. I feel like I should send you a copay. Okay. <laughs> I'm on I Venmo. Know. I'm on Venmo. We can arrange that. <laughs> wow. I, I, lo- I love that idea even more. The fact mm. that we're all locking roots, trying to hold each other's souls yeah. up yeah. through these difficult times and these difficult right conversations yeah I love that um that kind of leads me into the next thing you also talk about a leader being a good human Mm. and showing up with compassion yeah what does what does that look like I I mean I think you already kind of described it in terms of I think we know what that doesn't look like. (laughs) I I can agree. Yes. (laughs) So I think we often make leadership this complex thing. And what if we boiled it down to the idea that being a great leader is just like being a good human? Because most of us can wake up on any given day and think, I want to be a good human today. Like that seems very tangible Even on my worst days, that seems very tangible. I can try to be a good human today. And so for me, it's simplifying leadership that sometimes it means to simply be a good human. And I think part of that compassion piece is I think great leaders bring their whole self to their leadership. I think it gets really dangerous when we only want to bring the parts that we're comfortable with are the parts that look really good. I think great leaders bring their whole self. Parker Palmer would, would talk about it like shadow and light. And I think we, uh, healthy leaders, great leaders bring all of that because that's our humanness. And so if we can connect bringing our, our whole human self to leadership, then we are bringing the idea of being a good human to our leadership. Um, I, think, I think most great leaders wake up any day and think, I love my people so much that I have to make today better for them. Like, I, I have to do that. What, what can I do today to make things better for my people? And that's not, um, that's not some grandioso idea. That's like being a good human. What can I do to make things better for the people around me? So I think great leaders are compelled to make things better for their people because they love their people. They're driven because they love their people. I think unhealthy leaders are compelled to action because their people love them. And so it's just a little bit of a flip there. So a healthy leader is saying, I'm gonna do everything I can for my people because I love my people. An unhealthy leader is saying, they love me, so I will do these things for them. And that to me is like the humanness is missing in that second description. But in the first one of, I just, I love my people, that's a very human 
thing that we do, that, that desire to make things better for others. And so I think when we bring our full self, when we bring our own humanity, um, part of that compassion is like allowing the stuff I'm uncomfortable with, the stuff I'm not good with into my own leadership, because that then extends that compassion to others to want to do the same thing. And so anytime I think we're opening up space and saying to people, bring your whole self to the table, that is a compassionate thing to do. And that's a very human thing to do. And that's what I think great leaders are driven by. Wow. Wow. Sarah's just smiling. She's, Can you see the feel- heart? The heart's coming out of my eyeballs. I do. I, do. I just... I feel like uh, Bugs Bunny, just like, zoo, zoo. Um, it, no, I, what I love about this is that obviously I'm not a leader of anything, but um, I'm kind of taking the word leader and putting parent in there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I can be the leader of my family, right. um, me and my husband. And obviously every, like, every morning I wake up, and I think, what can I do for my family? Like, how can I be better than I was yesterday? Um, so it's really, it's a cool way to, to think about that. Like, you don't have to be mm-hmm. a coach of a college soccer team. Like, you can be a mom and still use these same principles. So let me give you this definition of leadership and see if it changes your opinion of whether you, whether you are or aren't a leader. So my definition of, of it is this, a leader is a person of influence who uses their influence for good. Mm-hmm. So where are the spaces in your life that you have influence and are you using those for good? Say yes. <laughs> Don't say that, then people will expect me to do good things. Stop putting so much pressure on me. Well, I'm I'm actually glad, Sarah, that you brought up the visual of the family unit, mm. right? And in, in our family unit, like I'm thinking about like I'm the mom, but in the family unit, there, there does have to be leadership, right? Mm-hmm. It may not be a soccer team, but actually in special needs families, mm. th- we are almost in charge of a soccer team. Yeah, between, you got the offense and the defense. Right, between... <laughs> Physical therapist, <laughs> occupational therapist, speech therapist, doctors, um, other medical professionals, other therapy professionals, the the special, the intervention specialists, the the teachers, the music therapists. It's a whole team. It's a whole team of people that, while I am not the person who signs their paychecks, in indirectly I am. And I need to show up as a leader for my child and help that team do the best that they can for my child. 100%. Yeah, you're, you're waking up every day thinking, how can I make things better for my child? Mm-hmm. That's leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do you, you feel like a leader right now, Miss Sarah? I mean, I you're guess getting- so. I think we're going to drag her kicking and screaming into this idea <laughs> of being a leader. It's going to happen. Do you, do you see people like, do you, I mean, I struggle with, with the idea of like thinking, oh, I'm a leader. Do you, I mean, you, you see, you must see that. What, what does that look like when you see it? Yeah, I, I, 
I often talk about the idea of positional power versus relational influence. And so positional power is what we tend traditionally to think leaders are. So positional power means someone had to give it to you. They had to vote for you, elect you, select you. It's rank, it's title, it's authority. Um, it's a, it's a badge. It's some sort of uniform. It's something that says I have power. The challenge with that is the same people that gave you the power can take the power away. So positional power is always temporary, but that's usually what we think of when we think of leadership. Well, no one elected me or told me or said I should be the leader. My belief is that positional power is fleeting. What matters is relational influence. And the reality is we all have relational influence. And so how do we want to maximize and utilize our relational influence? And so once people start to shift their thought process from, oh, I don't need someone to, to certify me as a leader, I can just go choose to use my influence, to use my relationships in positive ways, and that makes me a leader, then there's a little bit of a thought process that shifts for them. Um, but so many people have that old school thought of, I, of like a triangle, and I have to be at the top of the, the pyramid, and people have to put me there. I don't think that's the case at all when it comes to leadership. I think we all have the opportunity to lead uh, and to influence others in positive ways. So positional power, mm -hmm. relational influence. Yep. I hope people are taking notes right now <laughs> when they're listening to this, for sure. Um, okay. I'm definitely going to take, like, re-listen and take notes because I'm just so, like, <laughs> starstruck right now. I know, right? I'm like, oh, wow. I'm experiencing okay. a reckoning. I know. I know. It's amazing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your work in personality stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the whole spark for this was me seeing you post like, I'm really excited about personality assessments. And I was like, tell me more. <laughs> So I'm a big fan of personality assessments um, and there's lots of different ones and I think they're all wonderful. Um, I think you should utilize whatever one speaks to you. Now there are a couple that really speak to me and speak to me just kind of in the way I'm wired, but there are like these, uh, I don't know, competing people that want to compete and say, which one's the best. Well, if one helps you learn and helps you know about yourself, and you feel comfortable with it and the language and the images make sense to you, go with that and then maybe add some more to it. Um, so I'm not here to convert anyone on any particular personality assessment. If, you, if you're learning from it, then it's a good tool. So for me, about five years ago, I got certified as a Myers-Briggs facilitator. That's a five-day process. We take a test at the end of every day before you move on to the next day. There's a lot of psychology and data and research. And I'm definitely wired as a thinker who likes to think about systems and structures and I like everything organized. So that one makes a lot of sense to me. So for the last five years, I've been able to facilitate that and help people have a little bit better understanding of who they are and just how they're wired and how they can put themselves in positions to be at their best. Now. I think the hesitancy for a lot of people on personality assessments is don't put me in a box, don't label me, don't tell me what I can and can't do. So the analogy that I use is uh, most people have seen a baseball game. Everybody's out there playing a different position, but they're experiencing that game, they're experiencing that moment differently. 
So the catcher and the center fielder are both on the field, but having vastly different experiences and vastly different perspectives about what's happening on the field. To me, that's a lot like a personality assessment. We can all have the same experience, but experience it differently. And when we understand some of our wiring, then we're better able to put ourselves in a position to be at our best, but also to, to create that compassion of understanding, oh, that person is not being difficult and distant. They're just wired so differently and they have to do it that way for it to make sense to them. So I often use Myers-Briggs. Um, I don't use it with college teams very often, but I certainly use it with corporate groups of understanding this is, this is someone's, maybe you could call it like their center of gravity. This is where they stand in the world. This is where they're experiencing the world. And once you understand that, it changes everything because it becomes less about that person is difficult and distances themselves from me. And we got to let that person go to, uh, they're putting themselves in a position to be at their best. And if they're at their best and I'm at our best, my best, our team is at the best, our group, what our organization is at our best. So for me, that's what a personality assessment does. It's not limiting or putting people in a box. It's just understanding where's the best starting point for them. Where do they experience the world? How do they navigate the world in a way that's different than me? I love that because that's what we're doing with our autistic kids. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I'm figuring out, you know, because you hear that a lot, autistic people are wired differently. And I'm figuring out what makes my son tick. What do I need to change about my approach to help him? Mm -hmm. How best do I, you know, help him through the day? Right. It's, it's so cool that, you know, it's like mainstream and, um, you know, if you can, if you can do that work with a typical person, if you're willing to put in that work, you can do that work with an autistic person. Right. And they can be like understood and like able to be successful because people will actually listen to what their needs are and more of that, please. Yes. I love that for you, it is personality assessment doesn't equal a box. It equals Mm -hmm. helping you develop self-knowledge and compassion for others. Right. That makes me excited. Right. And I had honestly never looked at it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, being a mental health therapist, I'm familiar with them. I don't really use them all that often. Yeah. Um, And for me, I had always seen it as the box piece. Yeah. Yeah. Putting someone in a box. Yeah. But that self-knowledge, it makes so much sense because, yeah, you you will increase your compassion towards yeah. others. It's kind of just like what happens when you know more about yourself. Yeah, one of the activities that we usually do um, with larger groups, so if I have like 30 or more that are doing a, a Myers-Briggs assessment, we'll, we'll split them up so your, your types are all together. And I'll say, here's a big sheet of paper and here's all the markers you could want. And I want you to think about a room in the house that you guys want to think of as your favorite room in the house. And then I want you to draw everything that's in that room. And I swear to you, it's to the point where I can walk around and say like, oh, (laughs) I know exactly what type that is and what type that is and what type that is. So we're all in the same house, 
but we find comfort and solace in different rooms. And so for some people, they want to be in the kitchen. Like that's where they're most alive. For other people, they want to be in the garage. For other people, it's their bedroom with lots of pillows. For me, it's a library in my house. And so understanding that we're, we can, we're all free to move from room to room, but there are places that we gravitate to that just feel like, oh, this is right. This is where I'm at home. This is, I can do my best work. I can be my best self in this space. So when you think about in Myers-Briggs, the, the first two letters are introversion and extroversion. And that is not about, are you quiet or are you outgoing? It's about where do you get your energy? So extroverts get their energy from other people, which is why they appear to be outgoing because it's just this big cycle of you give me energy, I give you energy, here we go, here we go, here we go. Introverts, myself, get that energy from within. We're, we're more like... Um, we got to recharge really, really intentionally alone. So when you think about it in the workplace, if you are redesigning your office and you decide it's going to be all open workspace, one big table for everyone, your extroverts are going to be at their absolute best. This is great. They're going to bounce ideas off of each other. They're going to be playing music for each other. They're going to be dancing for each other. Your introverts will get nothing done. And so just understanding, like, how can I help this person to be at their best? And even thinking about that in terms of relationships, oh, that's an introvert and they've been on all day. They're just on empty right now. They're not standoffish. They're not being distanced. They're, they're on empty. And so it's, to me, it's just always about understanding what do I need to do to be at my best? But when there's tension and when there's conflict, Maybe it's not that that person has a problem with me. Maybe it's just that they're not in an environment that brings out their best. And so for me as a leader, how can I put them in a situation where they're going to be at their very best? I love it. And I totally understand the extrovert introvert mm -hmm. piece of it. I am more of an extrovert and I married more of an introvert and our conversations over the years have definitely evolved as I've continued to understand how yeah. he, how his brain functions. Right. Um, and it went from less me being sad and crying because he didn't respond <laughs> right away to my questions yeah. or to my thought. Like I'll say a thought out loud and I'm just waiting for him to respond. And no, no, he's, he needs like the next day he might come back and say, Oh, by the way, I've been thinking for the last 24 hours about that thing you said, and now I'm ready to talk about it. I know exactly the person you're describing. Yes. <laughs> That's me. And, and that would drive me. I thought, what am I doing wrong? Mm. And then now it occurs to me, right. oh, no, it's just, that's just part of who he is. Right. And now I get that and I can be, ta-da, more compassionate towards right. him right. because I understand that better now. So yeah. that makes complete sense. Good. So when you're using Myers-Briggs, um, the other pieces of it, because the, it occurs to me, it's familiar to me. Sarah, were you familiar with Myers-Briggs? Did you know about it? No. Um, okay. Well, I've seen people say like, I'm an ISJW, and I don't know what that means. Um, okay. I think I looked it up one time and it seemed hard, so then I did something else. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we know there's an E and an I for extrovert, introvert. Molly, could you walk us through the other categories, yeah, so, the other letters? 
So we start with E and I, that's about, about introversion and extroversion, that's about uh, energy. And then we could have an S or an N, and this is about uh, how, we, how we take in information. So the N stands for intuition, and the S stands for sensing. Uh, intuition tends to be big picture, possibilities type people. That would be me. Sensing tends to be more aligned with the facts and the de details and the data. So I would be shocked if you met an accountant who was an N, who, who relied on intuition. Usually they're more sensing. Um, the next one we would have would be T or F, so thinking or feeling. And so this is about, um, this doesn't mean that thinkers don't feel and feelers don't think, but which is our default in our decision-making process. So do we trust our thinking more or do we trust our feeling more? So I am a T, I'm a thinker. So you've got an interesting combination for me. I'm introverted and I'm a thinker, which means I am 100% gonna internally process my thoughts. Um, an extroverted thinker is going to want to explain all of their thoughts to you. It can be a little overwhelming. I've been with some extroverted thinkers who want to tell me everything in their brain. Me too. <laughs> and then the last one we have are judging and perceiving. And that's really how we organize the outside world. So judging tends to be more linear. Um, if, if we had a whiteboard in front of us, and we drew a starting point and a finishing point. For those who rely on judging, it's a pretty straight line. I'm going to do A and then B and then C. It's very linear. It's just this is the progress that we progression that we follow. Those who feel more perceiving, we could draw those same two points, the starting and finishing, and then take a marker, and they're going to go all over the map. They will eventually get to the same ending point, but they've got to explore all the possible opportunities that are out there before they get to that process. So you, so, so if you take these four categories, which each have two letters, there's 16 different possibilities. And it is fascinating to me to meet someone new and think, ooh, we have some common ground. I wonder what it is. Like, what, what is it about us? And then you discover, okay, well, we have two of those letters that are very similar, but then there's two that we're very different in. Um, but there have been times when I've met someone that I've said, oh my gosh, they're, they're the exact same type as me. I know it. I know it. I can feel it. I can feel this connection between us. And sure enough, I'm, I'm usually right about that. And then there are other times where I've thought this person is really difficult for me. And I find out we are wired so differently. And so then we have to figure out how do we work together? How do we function together? If we're gonna, if we're wired so differently, if you at your best and me at my best is that different, how do we coexist and how do we make that work? Um, and then, you know, with with all of those letters, with the assessment that you get back if you go through this process, um, are all of these subcategories, and that's where it gets mind blowing. And you find out that somebody who is an introvert, and you think, well, I'm an introvert, we're good, and then you find out ways that you're different in ways that you're similar. It's just fascinating. And again, just a tool for me to better understand myself and better understand others. Okay. I'm going to have to take this test and find out. And then it's so funny because there's so many times that my husband will do something 
insane and I'm like he can't help it he's a Gemini <laughs> but maybe it's because he's a exactly a whatever and I'm a whatever and they don't mix that's right well as you were talking I was kind of visualizing in my brain just how valuable this information would be to other families mm. especially special needs families Again, because we manage teams and it tends to be, I'm thinking about, I tend to be the person who does all of the in-person stuff for Finn. So I'm the one that goes to the doctor's appointments. I'm the one that does the school stuff. I'm the one that goes to the IEP meetings. And I have to come back and translate that information to my husband and kind of bring him in. And I was thinking about just how valuable it would be if we had that self-knowledge because there are so many decisions that you have to make on a daily, weekly, monthly basis when it comes to being a parent of a special needs kiddo. Right. And, and just how much this information could be helpful, this self-knowledge could be helpful because we do have to come together to make those decisions when usually one person is kind of that star quarterback yeah. Yeah. who's always in the game and the other person might be, you know, the backup person doing like sitting on the bench and right. you have to go bring them into the game. Yeah. And I would, I would guess that there are people who have gotten um, maybe out of habit kind of sucked into playing particular roles that if you had that knowledge, you might be able to say the reason that one task responsibility job exhausts me is because it's taking me so far out of how I'm wired, but you now you're wired for this. Maybe we need to switch up some things here and have you take this piece on because like that's your sweet spot. That that's where you're at your best. And so if families are able to think about and have that knowledge of where am I at my best, I think you're in a position to to divide some things up in a way that is healthier for everybody. Yes. If I try to take my husband and put him in an IEP meeting, no. Right. No. No. And I can deal with it because I am that more of an extroverted person. I am that person who can talk to the 10 different people at the table and, you know, can bring everything together. He can do it. It's just it will exhaust him to the point where he's just done then for the day because meetings don't work for him because of his introverted nature. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Introverts will have a finite amount of energy when they've had to be around people. And so I think in those situations, you have to figure out what's the cost of this. Like, is it worth it for him to be on empty for the rest of the night? Maybe there's a situation where you say yes, but it sounds like most of the time, no, that's not worth it. But again, it takes that self-knowledge and that self-awareness to understand how do I put myself in a best position to then lead my family in a healthy way. And I have discovered that if I come home and say, honey, Sarah said that we have to do a podcast. He's really good at researching how to make a podcast happen. Because <laughs> <There you go. laughs> all he has to do is interact with a computer and he gets all the answers for there how to go. make that happen. So what else about 
the Myers Briggs. I I I just love that you brought this tonight to us because, again, I had never I had, I mean I'd heard of it and I'd seen it and I'm like oh yeah it's another assessment. But looking at it in this way, I kind of like want to go back to it and I kind of want to use it more with clients now, and even well, recommend and it to a special now. needs parents. Special needs parents, we are no strangers to forms mm. and surveys. True. And agree, strongly agree, disagree. Oh my God, I can't even tell you how many. So maybe that's why when I saw it, I was like, nope, yeah. <laughs> not today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would think, I would think your experience has been a lot of people have tried to put your family in a box and have tried to put mm-hmm. limits on family members and have tried to say like, we have to define this person functioning in this way, shut the door, that's, that's it. And that is, that is not the case for me with personality assessments. It's understanding. Here, here's another way we could describe it. If, if, uh, if I said to you guys, hey, I, I live in St. Louis, I'd like you to come visit my next question is going to be, where are you now? So I can give you the right directions. So it doesn't, if I assume you're in Chicago, but you're not in Chicago, my Chicago directions do nothing for you. So personality assessments for me are like, I know where people are starting and then we know how do we work together versus they're in Chicago and they got to stay in Chicago. (laughs) Like we can still do life together, but we've got to understand where, where people feel the most grounded and where they're starting from. I love that. And that makes so much sense for families like ours because there's a constant question of and a const, constant uncertainty of where where could my child end up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like with my neurotypical child who just turned 17, by the way, yesterday, pray for me. <laughs> Um, I, I have a greater sense of where he's ending up in life sure, because he's on this like typical track with Finn. It's kind of wide open at this point. Mm -hmm. And the more we can think about things in terms of helping us, you know, the tools that we can use to help him plan his roadmap sounds wonderful. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take it. So if I can look at things that way, mm-hmm. that helps a lot. Like we're doing this meeting for the 10th time because I need to help him plan his roadmap. Mm-hmm. It's all part of it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. How did your Myers-Briggs work or did it, how did that lead you to the, is it the Enneagram? Uh, Am I saying that right? Yes. So <laughs> for, and you guys can't see it. Molly just like fireworks came through <laughs> the video screen. That was her Boy, funny I, face. I tell you, I there's a there's a lot of personality assessments I like. There's a lot I've used. I would say if if I were going to lead a personality assessment parade, it was the Myers-Briggs parade for a long time. And and there's still I still love using Myers-Briggs. But a few years ago, I did a deep dive on the Enneagram and whew, it just gave me a whole different perspective about myself. So caveat, uh, the Enneagram is different 
in that there are lots of organizations that teach it. There's lots of organizations that do Enneagram coaching. There's lots of Enneagram assessments that you can take. With Myers-Briggs, there's one assessment, there's one organization, there's one group that certifies. So that was really important to me with Myers-Briggs. Like I know I'm going to the best because it's the only, They've, they own the market on Myers-Briggs and I'm gonna go get trained by them. So I was a little hesitant about the Enneagram because it seemed like, well, anybody can just do the Enneagram. And that made me a little nervous. I had always heard about it, but because there wasn't this like one certifying organization, I just didn't take it seriously. And then I heard Ian Cron speak at LeaderCast a few years ago and it blew me away. And I thought, well, if he is a fan, then I should probably take it seriously. So in a nutshell, um, and again, I'm not certified. So uh, I'm just as a passionate fan of the Enneagram sharing this knowledge with you. Um, the Enneagram is essentially nine numbers that make up a circle. And so you may have seen that graphic at a bookstore or, or on social media. And then there's all these lines that kind of connect it. It's like stars that are in the middle of it. So basically, like Myers-Briggs, there's one that feels like your home base. There's one that feels like, yep, this is me. What is different to me is that when I figured out my Myers-Briggs, I was so excited. I was like, yep, that's me. This is the great, I don't have any tattoos, but I could get INTJ tattooed on me if they need me to be the face of the INTJ. I'll do that. I'm so proud. Uh, these are my people. The Enneagram was a vastly different experience, which was more like, oh crap, that's me. <laughs> and that has been the experience that most of my friends have had of, yep, I got some stuff to work on. Um, I have found that the Enneagram exposes a little bit more of you. Um, the Enneagram has what's called nine levels of health. And so you start to understand in that home base that you're in, in that place that feels natural to you, what does it look like when you're really healthy? And what does it look like when you're unhealthy? And that for me has been really powerful. Um, if, you, if you can picture in your head those nine numbers in a circle with all those lines between it, what it basically does is says, when you're really healthy, you take on the healthy characteristics of another number, and that's defined by those lines. And when you're really unhealthy, you tend to take on some of the unhealthy characteristics of a different number. And so there are now times when I am able to identify my behavior in this moment, my behavior this day, my behavior this last week has clearly been unhealthy. Like there are some changes that I have to make based on the Enneagram. Um, the other piece of it that I'll share with you that I really like about the Enneagram is, is it divides all nine numbers in, into three kind of subsections, if you will. And that is, are you rooted in your head, your heart, or your body? And understanding those differences for me has been incredibly powerful because there have been times, particularly in my, in my work with groups, which is usually very experiential and we're in a circle uh, where I can see that person is having a reaction that is very much rooted in their heart. But this person next to me appears to not be having a reaction, but as someone who is head-centered, I know what's going on in their head right now. 
And then understanding those body-centered people and how they need to move and express themselves and are very kinesthetic in their nature. So the Enneagram is different. Um, I encourage people who are interested in, in the Enneagram, let me pause for a second. For Myers-Briggs, there's only one organization that you pay to take a Myers-Briggs assessment. It's pretty simple. The Enneagram, you can go online and take all these free assessments and there's some paid ones and it, it's all over the map. My suggestion for the Enneagram is go take a bunch of them. Do a bunch of the free ones. They're all going to have different questions. Maybe do one of the paid ones. The Enneagram Institute has one that I think is really good. And see what, what three numbers kind of consistently surface for you. And then read the descriptions of those three numbers and see if one of them just punches you in the heart and makes you go, oh my gosh, that's me. Um, that's been the experience that I've had with most people. So unlike Myers-Briggs, where you take this lengthy assessment and the computer shoots it out, the Enneagram is much more of, this is what we're hearing from you. What do you think? And now you've got to go research a little bit, read those descriptions and see, uh, see where you think you land. So you have to own that process a whole lot more with the Enneagram. So I think it, for somebody who's like, I really want to get to know myself, it's a good tool because you're going to have to do the work to really figure that out, figure out where you land. Uh, that sounds hard. <laughs> Sarah said, not more work, a more adulting. So, so I I'm just took the test. Um, Tara sent a link mm -hmm. um, so for one of the free ones. Okay. For one of the free ones. I ain't paying 15 bucks. Um, and I was a six. Mm -hmm. Um, 98% six. Okay. And then my next one was like 47% nine. Okay. And everything else was like in the thirties or something. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm a six. And then I read the description. I was like, Oh, I'm a six. Yeah. So a six, uh, I don't really remember a lot about what Most it Most people would but, use the description of the loyalist for the six. Um, I have a good friend who's a six and we call him the safety monitor because he is, he is always making sure, is everybody okay? Is everybody have their seatbelt on? Is everybody good to go? Um, sixes tend to have an element of fear. Like they don't want people to be hurt. They don't want danger. They're, they're loyal in looking. Oh, they have anxiety. <laughs> uh oh, did we strike another? If there was a Miss America, like anxiety pageant, It'd be the only one I ever won. <laughs> but it I was agree. really interesting because it talks about how, um, you know, like I, I never want to be like, like I am very much Tara's co-host. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be up front and center. I'll be in the background cheering for you, but please yeah. don't put me on that stage. Like yeah. it really made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, this this little test gets me. It's, it's fine. And then I'm like, what's Owen? I need to know what Owen is. But he's asleep and I can't ask him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I turned out, if I remember correctly, I turned out to be a nine, okay. like mostly a nine. Okay. And I don't remember a whole lot about what it said because I was reading it you very quickly. You told me quickly. you were a two. Was I a two? Oh, a two. I'm sorry. I meant a two. Okay. So twos <laughs> are often called the helpers. Um, they are in the heart center, the heart triad. 
So your, your default would be your, your heart, not your head, not your body. Um, here's what an unhealthy two can look like. So you can be ready for this. Okay. okay. <laughs> an unhealthy two will say, will, will act in a way that appears to be helping someone, but really you're helping them so that they will love you. Wow. So a healthy two wow. is able to just like, I just want to help. Like, I just want to help you. An unhealthy two gets into a space of, but if I help you, then you'll love me. And that's the real goal is for you to love me. Molly, have you been listening to, are you like reading my texts? <laughs> I, I kind of, I'm kind of creeped out right brother. now. I, I, I know. Have, <laughs> I have I'm not. Like, <laughs> ah, Okay. All right. Well, I'm just going to sit here for a minute with that. Okay. Okay. So tell me what a healthy and an unhealthy six does. So I don't have very many sixes in my life. So I don't know as much about the six. Um, Now I do. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think for sixes, it really comes back to thinking about where does that fear element show up for you and how does that become a limiter for you? Um, and when are you able to, to realize that your fear is stopping you from doing what you need or want to do and trusting Mm. that you have enough to be able to do that? Mm. Oh, I've got plenty, Mm -hmm. plenty Mm -hmm. of fear so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Is it possible to like do work and change who you are inside? No. Okay. I'm screwed. Got it. No. She's giving me the saddest shake of her head, you guys. <laughs> no, but here's what you can learn. You can learn how to be healthy in your number. Uh, and so once you, once you do the work to figure out, well, what does the unhealthy me look like? Like I've dropped down into that unhealthy place. What does a healthy me look like? And, and so how do I Um, how do I stay in that space a little bit more? Like we're always going to have throughout our day, we're going to cycle through health and unhealth. You know, if someone cuts you off in traffic, usually we drop down to an unhealthy space really quickly, but do we stay there or do we, do we understand how we get back into a healthier place? And that looks different for every single number. Um, but for me, it's been so powerful. And some of my, some of my really good, um, groups of friends. Like we've all done the Enneagram and we all know what each other's numbers are. And I'm able to have conversations with friends if they're struggling with something. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, like she's really dropped into an unhealthy one right now, or she's a really unhealthy seven right now. And so it's less about what is she sharing with me and more, how can we get her back to a healthy place so that she can navigate this experience in a little bit better way. Um, But I have probably three groups of friends that are all into the Enneagram. And it's just been really powerful at this stage in our lives to figure out how do we navigate things from healthy places rather than trying to just dig our heels in uh, and sort things out when we're feeling and acting unhealthy. So what is your number? I'm a five on the Enneagram. So fives are observers. Uh, We are really good at connecting dots, at seeing patterns, Oftentimes, if we're in a room, we like to kind of sit on the outside of the room and take it all in. We're, we're usually able to read a room pretty well. 
uh, but systems and patterns and ways dots connect certainly resonate with fives. Um, we don't need to be in the spotlight. In fact, we'd rather be off to the side taking it all in from that perspective. We are head-centered, which makes sense if we're going to study patterns and behaviors. Um, the word really associated with fives is competency. That's something that's really important to fives. So when I am unhealthy, I convince myself I am not competent at something and that becomes a limiter for me. Like I don't have enough information yet. I don't know enough. I need to read one more book, listen to one more podcast, take one more grad class, and then I'll be able to, to talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I've had to, to really work in the last few years at recognizing you've probably already read five more books on the topic than anyone else. You're probably okay to talk about this. Um, you, you don't need to read another book on it because um, that can be a barrier for me of thinking I need more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge before I speak. And then sometimes that door of opportunity is closed. Like everybody else has moved on to something else and you're still studying something from a year ago. Um, so that can be a, a challenge for me when it comes to issues of competency. I, that resonates with me big time. Yeah. I often... Yeah, I often am that person that's like, oh, I don't know if I can speak on this simply because, you know, I know this much about it. I need yeah. this much more information. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And I've even said that to myself before. And then a good friend helps me with something that I she stated this to me and I kind of always carry it around with me is you can really only make decisions and like speak in the moment on the information you have. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can always get more information at yeah. that point. Yeah. You know, you can only make the decisions based on the information you have at that point. Yeah. That's good. This is how much of a six I am. Um, the first thing I did after I got my results was look up famous people that are also sixes um, and it was like, you're a good company. Justin Timberlake is a six. Gwen Stefani is a six. I'm like, yes. And it was like, Adolf Hitler is a six. And I was like, no. Like, and then I got really anxious that I'm Hitler. No. <laughs> that was my, where my brain went. I'm going to say, and this is just a guess. I'm going to say the Hitler thing may not be so accurate. Um, as, you know, that happened a long time ago. And I don't... <laughs> I don't know. The Enneagram hasn't been around that long. Has it's it? It's actually been it? around a really long time. It's my understanding it hasn't always been used as a personality assessment, though, that there were some gotcha. other ways that they used it. But I'm guessing even if there was a paper assessment that Hitler probably did not take that assessment. I Maybe wrong. Again, competency is important to me, so I don't want to put anything out there that might be inaccurate, but I'm going to I'm going to guess that. <laughs> You brought Hitler into the pot. Well, because then I didn't want to be, but, but then I was like, now I don't want anyone to know that I'm a six because what if like they find out that like Adolf Hitler was a six and now they think that I am like him and I don't want to be like him. Like no, how do no I more. be a different number? But Molly tells me I can't. No, you got to live with it. You're stuck with it. You're going to be the best six that you can be. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm already better than Hitler. So I'm on the right track. No more. Okay, we're done. We're all done. All done. Can we take this out? Keith, can you take all this out? Maybe. Maybe we'll see. Can we go back in time oh. and never do a podcast ever? Because <laughs> I'm ruining everything. You're so Just great. Kidding. I love this. All right. So I want to kind of um, 
I want to pull back in the last couple of minutes here. I want to kind of do the, the 50 foot thousand view if we can, because we went really personal in this current time in our world are, who are the leaders that are kind of inspiring to you right now? Uh, yeah, it's a pretty short list. Um, so I think in the public eye, I think that's, that's a big part of the tension right now is that we are lacking a lot of direction. We're lacking communication. We're, we're lacking clarity on what's next for us. And I think, as I mentioned earlier in the show, this idea that we do things because we love people or we do things because people love us, I think is very much at play right now. Uh, I think that there are people in the medical community right now. I think there are people who are organizers right now um, who are doing a phenomenal job leading. I think there are people on social media who are finding ways to use their platform to ask questions and to share conversations and to share their space in ways they haven't before. And again, if we come back to the definition of leadership being about influence and you're an influencer on social media and you're handing off your platform to someone else because their voice needs to be heard, that to me is leadership. Um, probably the voice that I, that I trust the most right now is a guy named Jerry Colonna, who wrote a book called Reboot, has a podcast called Reboot. He's in the leadership space, and, and he very much is my kind of leader. Um, he is somebody that is very people-centered, and uh, it's been fun to see see people gravitate towards him during a time like this. He, he is certainly someone, he's someone's voice I trust, um, but he isn't like a public figure. He, he isn't someone that's leading in that way, um, but he's helping leaders lead in better ways. And so I very much think we're in a leadership crisis right now. I think that's highly exposed. Um, but again, if we're not, if we don't think about leadership as a title, we have a lot of people who are leading in some powerful, powerful ways right now. Unfortunately, we have people with titles who are not leading. And that's a really interesting contradiction to watch that play out publicly for us. I love that. And I, I think the takeaway that I'm coming away with from our time together tonight, I love the position of power and the relational influence. And I love that it's really simple to be able to look at people who are leading right now and ask yourself, are they doing it from a position of empathy, compassion, and love for other people? Or is it all about them? And that's to me a really easy answer to come up with. You, you just know, I think you just know. And I think it helps us individually I think we're in a time where individually we we also have to turn inward. Like I see a lot of people turning inward right now and asking, how can I be a leader in my own circle? We all have our own circles. You know, we may not have 10,000, 100,000 people following us, but we have five or six people who are in our circle and we can use this information that you've shared with us tonight and we can be a leader in our circles. Yeah, I think, I think that, that, that comes back to the idea of who are we linking our roots with? And so people may say like, well, it's just me and my family. Okay, but we got to lock our roots in. 
with, with this other family and this other family and this other family. And in doing so, we hold each other up. Um, so it doesn't have to be, do I have hundreds of thousands of followers? If we're linking our roots up in a way that holds people up, then that's what we need to do during this time. Molly, thank you for linking your roots with Sarah and I tonight. I was about to say the same thing. and It's going to be so deep and so poignant and you stole it from me. I'm sorry. I've had so much fun tonight. This has, this been, has, brought, this has been fun. I'm so stressed out. So much joy. I just, this is like kind of the deep breath mm. I needed. So I really, I really do appreciate you joining us and sharing Thank your Thank you so much. I this appreciate was, the invitation. This is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Anytime. Come back. Anytime. If, yeah. Anytime Glad you want to talk or you could, we'll, we'll take you out for dinner. Like, welcome to St. Louis. It's fine. Uh, if you want to meet Chicago, that's fine too. I like pizza. Um, Chicago I made it is weird a again. I, I love <laughs> Chicago. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, okay. Well, thank you so much, Molly. Where do we find you? when we're looking for you yeah, on the, social media world. The easiest place is to go to my website, mollygrisham.com. All of my social media is there. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, but inside my website are my blogs, the links to my YouTube channel. If you want to sign up for my mailing list, you can do that there. Um, I send out mailings about twice a month. I don't want to overwhelm people. Um, I have a couple of new projects launching that you may have some people that are interested in. Um, I have what's called the Leadership Experience, which is for high school and college students, and I host them all over the country. But obviously, we're not hosting anywhere right now. So we're going to do a virtual leadership experience for high school girls the end of July and August, and that event is on my website. There'll be two online sessions and then some activities that happen in between. Then I'm launching a new project called the Inward Experience. And the tagline is an interactive process of realigning your inner and outer life. And that will be uh, either a 75-minute or 90-minute process where we'll have small groups online to do some deep interpersonal work. Uh, And so you may have some folks that would be interested in carving out a small piece of time to get in touch and kind of realign their inner and outer life. And so that info will be on my website soon as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Everybody go check out Molly Grisham at mollygrisham.com and seriously watch the YouTube videos because you will just feel better like in under a minute. Seriously. One way to like just feel better in under a minute. Do it. Feels so good. So (laughs) now I'm getting weird. I'd love it. Check it out. All right. Well, thank you again. And to our listener family, you guys, thank you for joining us again. You humble us and we love you each time you come back to listen to us. Here is to the complexity in our journeys, the highs and lows, the joys and sorrows. And may those who observe us do so with compassion, especially for our amazing kiddos. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys.